Indeed, what a great promise it is, dear friends, in the words we have just sung, that thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat with humble hope, attend thy will, and wait, and wait, and wait beneath thy feet. Friends, in our fast-paced society, waiting is often viewed negatively. We often struggle to wait, don't we? Because we want results quickly. Uh, For many, waiting may seem to be a sign of inefficiency. Waiting is often viewed as useless or boring or as a barrier to our craving for instant gratification. Think about how aggravated some of us may tend to become if the red light seems to be 15 seconds longer than what we expect it to be. Or think about the time when you are in a shopping line and uh, you look at all the cashiers and and the shortest line in any of the cashiers has 10 people ahead of you. And it feels like your whole day is ruined and your whole countenance and attitude is, is ruined. Why? Because you are made to wait an extra 10 minutes of your 24 hours that day. We don't like to wait. Because we don't like waiting in general, we also don't transfer that dislike to our spiritual lives And we struggle with the notion of waiting on the Lord. Naturally, we don't like waiting even on the Lord. It is difficult for us to wait on the Lord. And yet the Bible has several places, several verses that challenge us to wait on the Lord. Uh, Just a few from, from the Psalms, and there's many I could go into, but just a few so on Psalm 27, 14, which we read earlier in our, in, our, in our service, it ends with these words, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 62, 5, for God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. In the book of Isaiah, one of my favorite verses speaks about waiting on the Lord. It's somewhere in the middle of the book of Isaiah. We will not read it. I'm going to ask you to go read the rest of Isaiah and look for the one word somewhere in the middle of Isaiah that promises what happens to the people who wait on the Lord. Look for it. Read Isaiah ahead. In the passage that we are looking at today, we are going to see the importance of of waiting on the Lord. In Isaiah, waiting on the Lord is one of the key characteristics of people, of the people of God. In Isaiah, it becomes clear that the people who don't trust on the Lord don't wait on the Lord. They act rather in their own power. They act in their own timing. 
And the people who truly trust in the Lord are the people who wait on the Lord. Friends, waiting may not be a luring experience in our daily social experiences, um, but when it comes to our spiritual lives, waiting on the Lord is very important. It's an important experience. Our waiting on the Lord or lack of it reveals where our trust truly relies. So this morning, I encourage you to open up our Bibles uh, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. I'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 27, verse 13. Isaiah 26, 1 to 27, 13. If you're opening your Bibles, uh, in the, the Bibles in our pews, you may find this passage on page number 586. And as you're opening your Bible to this passage, for those of you who are visiting us, we are currently working through the book of Isaiah. And uh, it is our hope and desire to have a good grasp of this entire book over the course of the next few months. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the foot of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O oh Lord, in distress, they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to give birth, so were we. Because of you, O oh Lord, we were pregnant, 
we rise and we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. For your dew is, like, is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to, to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. In that day, the Lord with his heart and great and strong sword will punish the Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day and have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them, and I would burn them up together, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He has struck them as he struck those who struck them. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or ha have they been slain as they slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by, his, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out by the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the revelation you give us of yourself and of your plans with humanity. And we praise you for the way you show us in your word how you desire for your people to respond to your plans. Father, would you speak to our hearts 
in a way that encourages us, in a way that edifies us, in a way that strengthens your people to wait on you. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. When we read a passage of Scripture, one of the things we should observe uh, is any repetitions of words. And as we look at this passage, uh, chapters 26 and 27 of Isaiah, this passage that is an ending to a second major part of the book of Isaiah, this passage that, that come, brings to an end chapters 13 to 27, as we look at this passage, this ending, this conclusion, I wonder if you picked up on any repetitions. I wonder if you saw the, the phrase, in that day. It shows up five times in our passage. In chapter 26, verse 1. In chapter 27, verse 1, verse 2, verse 12, and verse 13. If you look back at the, at the previous two chapters, chapter 24 and 25, uh, we see that this phrase, in that day, showed up again in those two chapters as well. In chapter 25, verse 9, uh, Isaiah said, It will be said on that day. What will be said on that day? Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what will be said on that day. If we go earlier to chapter 24, the phrase that day was used again on, in chapter 24, verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven. What connects chapters 24, 25 with chapters 26 and 27 is this phrase, this repetition, on that day or in that day. In these four chapters from last week, what we covered and today, we see this phrase seven times. That day, what is it referring to? These chapters seem to be telling us what will happen on that day, but what is that day referring to? Well, that day refers to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an important concept, an important truth that we see developing in the, starting in the Old Testament and then culminating and, and going to the New Testament. It's the day when God will visit the earth to judge the earth. It's a day when God will come upon the earth to bring everything to a day of accountability. And we saw in chapter 24, particularly, how God will make the earth desolate. How God will empty the earth in that day. And not only the earth, he will empty the spiritual uh, realities that will happen. The hosts of heaven as well as the kings of the earth. But in that day, in chapter 25, the destiny of the people of God is going to be totally different than the destiny of destruction that we see uh, that we saw earlier. In 25, chapter 25 tells us that in that day, the people of God will have a totally different experience than the people of the earth who will be apart from God. In chapter 25, we see that in that day, the Lord will invite his people to a, a luxurious and lavish banquet. In that day, we see that God will, will actually make his people to, to come through death and will put death away, will swallow death and will wipe away their tears. 
what a different destiny for the people of God in that day. At the end of chapter 25, God's people are described in that day as the people who have waited for the Lord. The people who have waited for the Lord. That's how that day will describe God's people. But when we come to chapter 26, the theme of both that day and waiting show up again. Particularly in chapter 26, God's people refer to themselves as currently waiting on the Lord. But how should this waiting happen? If waiting is such an important characteristic in these chapters and in the book of Isaiah, uh, what characterizes this waiting on the Lord? How do we wait on the Lord? Well, chapters 26 and 27 will describe how the waiting of God's people ought to play out. We will look at three truths about waiting on the Lord, how to wait on the Lord. First truth that we see in this passage, the waiting on the Lord, or wait on the Lord with trustful praise. Wait on the Lord with trustful praise. Friends, waiting, especially when we think about waiting on the Lord, should not be bored uh, with boredom or should not be with lacking things to do. Notice uh, at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 26 that God's people are described as singing a song that praises God for providing a city of safety, a strong city. In verses 1 through 6, we see the images of two cities contrasted. In verse 1, the city that God prepares for His people is described as a strong city. In verse 5, we see a lofty city. But this lofty city is not strong. It's, it's trampled down. Notice the contrast. The city for God's people is described as strong. What makes it particularly strong is that its walls and bulwarks are unusual. The walls of this strong city are not bricks and mortar, are not cement. The walls of the city are salvation. It's salvation that protects this city and makes it strong. Look at verse 1. He, referring to God, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. What protects the people of God in this strong city is God's salvation. They need no other protection than the salvation of God. Now, how many of you would rather have some other means of protection and security? For the people of God, in the city of God, the salvation that God prepares for them is sufficient ground for their security. And God's people see God's salvation in this song as enough grounds to call their city a strong city. Friends, I wonder if this would satisfy your soul. Would you be willing to live in a city where this, its, its walls are only salvation? God's salvation. Would you be able to say these words, that we have a strong city because God sets salvation as the walls of the city? Notice who can enter the city. 
open the gates, that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. The people who dwell in the city are righteous, and this means that they are right with God. But how are they right with God? They are right with God by faith. They keep the faith. Notice what the Lord does for the people of the city. It says in verse 3, You, referring to the Lord, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Notice who are the people who benefit of this God-given peace. It's not everyone. It's only those whose minds are focused on God. Why, do they, why are their minds focused on God? Because they trust God. And this means, if we were to take this backwards, this means that trusting in God manifests by keeping our attention on Him, not on the circumstances we face. How often and how easy it is for us to be overwhelmed by circumstances. How easy it is for us to be overwhelmed by what people do to us. When we keep our focus on circumstances or on people, our hearts become overwhelmed by anxiety, by fear, by revenge, by hopelessness, by bitterness, and a host of other sinful responses. But when we are close to the Lord and focus on the Lord and trust in the Lord, we make an intentional choice to redirect our attention away from circumstances or people and unto the Lord. And the Lord brings peace to our minds. But it starts when God's people respond with trusting in the Lord. I wonder if you are conscious of what you are really trusting. I wonder if you re realize that what you set your mind on and what preoccupies your mind if what you think about indicates what you're trusting on. That's why in verse 4, Isaiah gives a command. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord forever. Why? For the Lord is an everlasting rock. Where there's no trust in the Lord, there's no peace of the Lord. We cannot benefit of the peace of the Lord without trusting in the Lord. In contrast to the strong city that God prepares for his people, we see in verses 5 and 6 the lofty city. What we see about this lofty city is that God has humbled its inhabitants and he has brought it low, casting the city to dust. Actually, notice who tramp tramples uh, the city. It's the feet of the poor. What makes this picture in particular, uh, in particularly interesting is that the, the poor have no ability to conquer or win a war. Yet the Lord is the one who brings down the lofty city and now lets the poor trample it. It's the Lord who is reversing these social expectations of a proud city. What seemed to be proud is now trampled by the very ones who are now poor. This contrast of the two cities ought to lead us to wonder, which city would you like to belong to? What is lofty in the eyes of this world? Would you rather live in the lofty city? Friends, this passage reminds us that what is lofty in the eyes of the world will not impress God. Quite the opposite. It will be the target of being brought to dust 
So ask yourself, friend, where do you seek peace and security for yourself? Is it the lofty city? Or is it the city that God secures through the walls of his salvation? The fact that God's people are thinking about the contrast between the strong city and the, the city that is trampled down is an indication where their hearts are. They want to rejoice. They want to sing about the strong city that has salvation for its walls. Oh, friends, I wonder, what is, what is it that you sing about when no one hears you? I'm not talking about the songs we sing when we're gathered together. We, we choose those songs for you. You don't, have a, you don't have a choice in what we sing together when we're gathered together. You're welcome to give me suggestions, and I'll gladly hear those. But we set that up. But what do you sing about when you, when you can choose your songs? When you're in the shower, when you drive your car? What is it that gives your heart joy? What do you aspire to? What makes your day? You know what made the day of these people? He was singing about the strong city that has salvation as its walls. So wait on the Lord with trustful praise. Waiting on the Lord is, is not boredom. Waiting on the Lord is a time in which we can wait on Him with trustful praise. Second of all, wait on the Lord with constant yearning for Him. Wait on the Lord with constant yearning for Him. In verses 7 through 11, we see another contrast in this passage. It's not between cities, it's between people. The righteous are contrasted with the wicked. And notice how each are described. In verse 7, the path of the righteous is level. You, referring to God, make level the way of the righteous. In verse 8, it says, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Here's what makes this verse interesting. It doesn't say, in the paths of your blessings, we wait for you. It doesn't even say, in the, in the paths of your promises, we wait for you. But in the path of your judgments. The word for judgment can also be used or can be translated as God's decrees or God's laws. In other words, God's people wait on the Lord by staying on the path of God's laws, of God's decrees, whatever the Lord says. Their waiting is a waiting on the path of the Lord's word. Oh, friends, waiting for the Lord is never passive. It's always an active waiting. It's a waiting that keeps us in the, in the path of, of what he has declared for us. Waiting on the Lord keeps our attention on God's word, where we see his decrees. In verse 8, the second half, it says, Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. In verse 9, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. This is the kind of waiting. Or these are the kind of descriptions that, that unpack what it means to, to wait on the Lord. What characterizes a righteous is not merely external acts. They are righteous not, because, not merely because they act in a certain way, but because their hearts seek the Lord. Their desire for the Lord is not merely an, an external appearance, but begins with that heartfelt yearning for the Lord. The righteous don't read the Bible just to check off their list and make themselves feel better at the end of the day. 
The righteous seek to gather regularly with God's people, not simply for the sake of giving the impressions of being right with God. They do righteous acts not to make themselves feel better. They, use, they do righteous acts because they yearn for the Lord. Friends, I wonder if you are more concerned with appearances of righteousness rather than with a heart that yearns for righteousness. The contrast from the righteous is to see how the wicked are described in verse 10. In verse 10, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. Their corrupt inclination is revealed in the fact that when they see God's favor or God's grace, they reject it. Look at verse 10. The, the wicked person does not see the majesty of the Lord. Many people may claim today that they don't see the majesty of God. But that doesn't mean that God's majesty is not real. It just means that they don't see it. Just means that they, they don't have eyes to see it, or they don't have wills to want to accept it. Now this, this text, uh, seeing the majesty of God, uh, or not seeing the majesty of God, is a characteristic of the wicked. They're blinded and un unable to understand that God is glorious and majestic. The description of the wicked in this text stands as a contrast to the people of God who yearn for him. Friends, waiting for God is not passive experience. It is an active experience of waiting and um, of yearning for God. And such yearning involves desiring God's name, desiring to remember God's word. Friends, is your waiting on the Lord filled with boredom? Do you feel like waiting on the Lord you must distract yourself to do something else so that you can put up with a period of waiting. Oh, friends, do you say, I'm waiting on the Lord, but I don't have much time for Him, or I don't think much about Him. I'm just waiting for the Lord to do something. Waiting that God, the waiting that God's people experience is a waiting that is characterized by yearning for Him. Thirdly, the waiting that God's people are to have on the Lord. So wait on the Lord with confident expectations. Wait on the Lord with confident expectations. In the rest of our passage, we will see a number of expectations that God gives for his people, or to his people, that God's people can expect from the Lord. The first one is that God will ordain Peace for his people. Look at verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Notice, notice this expectation and the timing of this expectation. It's in the future. It's not in the present. It means that God's people are recognizing that they are not yet experiencing this peace. It's still a future reality and hope. But on what grounds do God's people have this confidence and this expectation that God will ordain peace for them. Look at the rest of verse 12. For you have indeed done for us all our works. Friends, God's people recognize that the peace they will have is based not on their works, but on what God has done for them. 
the peace they will have is based on God's works for his people. It's not the peace they will have based on what other people will do for them. It's not the peace they will have based on what circumstances will change for them. It's peace based on what God has already done for them. If anything, the works of God's people in the past have all failed. We see in verses 13 to 18 that God's people recognize that their past works have failed. In verse 13 and 14, the people recognize that in their history, other lords besides God have ruled over them. And who is to blame for that? Who chose other rulers over them than the Lord? It's the people, the people of Israel. These rulers were not able to last uh, even in their memory. God's people recognize that they want to remember only God's name. Now people recognize that God was the only one who increased his people and their lands. It is God who made them grow. Growth came not from what people did, not from what their leaders accomplished. Growth came from the Lord. Sometimes church leaders will ask, what must we do to, to grow the church? And the answer is, Pursue God, and he will grow his people. That's the answer we need to give to the question, what must we do to grow? Any other question will undermine what Isaiah says in this passage. It is God who grew his people. It is God who expanded the land. And looking to leaders is not going to help. God is the one who does it. In verses 16 through 18, Isaiah reflects on another past experience and the pitiful state. The image is amazing. In verse 17, Isaiah compares a people of God in the past to a pregnant woman who cries in the, in, in the labor before giving birth. She goes to the pain of the labor, only that nothing comes out, only wind. The image explained in verse 18 we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. Isaiah says, we have been the people. We have been the woman in, in, in labor. We have gone through the pain of labor. You have disciplined us, O Lord. And we have not accomplished your deliverance in the earth. In other words, they have failed to accomplish God's purposes. But a second confident expectation of God's people is that God will raise them up from the dust. Despite their failed efforts to bring deliverance on the earth, notice what God says in verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Friends, this is one of the glorious promises in the Old Testament about the resurrection that God promised to give to everyone who belongs to his people. Israel was like a woman in labor who went through all her labor pains, but gave, no, gave birth to nothing. How sad that experience, to experience all the pain and for all of it to be in vain. But here in this passage in verse 19, God says that he will make the earth give birth. Do you see the imagery of, of giving birth? God would make that which we would expect not to happen, happen. Oh, friends, this verse speaks of, of not only the reality of the physical resurrection of the dead, 
that God will promise to bring about. But this points also to the reality that even though Israel failed in accomplishing the deliverance for the earth, God will accomplish His purposes. He will bring about those left in the dust to a new life. Friends, the confidence that God's people have is not based on what we can do for ourselves. It's not based on what people can do for us. It's not based on what the church can do for us. It's based on what God can do for us. God will not only ordain peace for His people, but God ordains for them to come and be raised from the dead. What a glorious, what a glorious promise. What a glorious expectation. In verse 20 and 21 of this chapter, God um, comes back, or the passage comes back to speaking about the, the provision that God will give for His people to secure them in light of the coming wrath uh, that will come against the entire earth. In verse 20, God uses an, an imagery that was used before at the time of the Exodus. God commands, in verse 20, God commands His people to enter their homes and shut the door behind them and not get out. So what is, what's going on with that imagery? Well, friends, the same command or similar command, similar words were used by God when the people were in Egypt and the angel of death was going to come upon the land. And God said, go in your homes. Not one of you should be out. While my wrath will come against Egypt, you all need to be inside the home. And not only that, you all need to put some blood on the, on the water, on the, on the doorposts of, the do- of, the, of your homes so that the wrath will not come into your home. And, and, and that's what the Hebrew people have done. And the angel of death has passed by wherever the blood was posted on the doorposts. Friends, in, in verse 20, we see this imagery of the Exodus. Now God is, is, is giving a word to protect them against the coming wrath that will come against the entire earth. And God says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. The verb for pass by is the same word used in Exodus when the angel of the Lord passed by over the homes that had the blood on their doorposts. Oh, friends, God will execute this judgment against the entire earth, against all the rebelliousness of the earth. In verse 21, we see this. For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Friends, if you're not a Christian, friends, if you're not a Christian, I don't want you to to minimize or misunderstand the great importance of this truth. I want you to know that God has placed a day on His calendar when He will visit the earth for judgment and will punish the people of the earth for their sin and for their rebellion. But even through that experience, God will protect His people. God's people will not be the object of His wrath and judgment. And if you don't belong to the people of God, you will have no protection for that day. The only way to escape the day of judgment is to turn to God in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that anyone who repents of their sin and turns to Christ in trustful reliance upon Jesus, upon what He has done to die upon the cross, to 
to bear the sin and the guilt of all those who would return to Him and repent of their sins. Well, friends, relying on Jesus is the only way that we can be rescued from the wrath of God because Jesus, in His death, has bore the wrath of God against all those who would turn to Him. Friends, Jesus rose again from the dead, proving that this resurrection promise is real. God will accomplish what He has said. Friends, you'd like to know more about what it means to to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But recognize this, that God's punishment is is coming, and the only way to escape it is to belong to the people of God through Jesus Christ. In, verse tw- in chapter 21, verse, sorry, in chapter 27, verse 1, God's punishment is turned not only towards the inhabitants of the earth, but against the Leviathan, the great monster of the sea. This monster is a symbol of all the rebellion of evil, of the evil of humanity. In Isaiah's view, the dragon in the sea may well refer to the demonic forces that stand behind the rebellion that's going on in our world. This means that God will destroy not only the rebellious people, but also the demonic forces that fuel the ongoing rebellion of the people of the earth. Friends, consider what God is giving. He is planning judgment to come, but He is promising that through that judgment, through that destruction, the people of God will experience the resurrection from the dust. The third expectation that we see that God's people can have about God is that God's people have or will have a worldwide fruitfulness. In chapter 27, in chapter 27, we see uh, another picture, a picture of a vineyard. And this vineyard is described as bountiful, full of fruit. Well, remember in chapter 5 of Isaiah, when we were earlier at the beginning of the book, God described his people through this imagery of a vineyard, a vineyard that God has protected, a vineyard that God has supplied and despite of all that God has done for that vineyard, the vineyard turned into sour fruit and did not give any fruit. So the Lord allowed the vineyard to be trampled, to be made desolate, no rain upon it, no more fruitfulness on it. The, the thorns and the briars were, were let to grow and over, overrun it. Well, in contrast with that picture, here we get a picture of a vineyard. The Lord is a keeper of this vineyard. The Lord is a supplier. He will make rain fall on it. And this, this vineyard will be fruitful. The, the Lord, as a protector of this vineyard, will no longer have any wrath against her vineyard. The Lord says that if there would be any thorns or briars, He would march against them and burn them up. The thorns and the briars represent the enemies of God's people. As we think about this, this picture, in verse 6, we see that instead of tra- nations trampling the Lord's vineyard, we see that this vineyard of the Lord will fill the whole earth with its fruit. What a contrast. What a contrast. As we think about this world, worldwide fruitfulness of God's people, Isaiah reflects on the discipline that the Lord has brought to his people. He remembers Isaiah 5. He remembers the Lord's discipline. That the Lord said, I will discipline my vineyard. Here's what I will do to my vineyard. And Isaiah reflects on that experience of receiving the Lord's discipline. The discipline of the Lord was a path to their fruitfulness. From Isaiah 5 to Isaiah 27, the discipline of the Lord was a path to the fruitfulness of this vineyard. 
In verse 9, God's discipline envisions a time when the sin of his people will be removed. And in verse 9, Isaiah does not tell us how the sin will be removed. We'll have to wait for that until Isaiah 53. Isaiah in this chapter only tells us what the removal of, of sin will produce among his people. What is the fruit that you can see that the people's sin has been removed? How do you know that their repentance is genuine? Look at verse 9. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk chalk stones crushed into pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. In other words, the fruit of their sin being taken away is that their idolatry will come to an end. There will be no more signs of idolatry in the land. The altars to foreign gods was a violation of the first commandment, yet Israel never removed entirely all the altars in its land. That's a sad reality. Now the result of the removal of their sin is that their idolatry will come to an end and the signs of their idolatry will be crushed, will be removed. Friends, the same truth is made clear in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks about the conversions of the people uh, of Thessalonica. And here's how Paul described their conversion. How you turn to God from your idols to serve the living God. How do we know that sin has been dealt with in our hearts? Here's how we know. Our idolatry is crushed into pieces. When we come to see our idols for what they really are, it's worthless. Friends, this is one of the signs that God has changed our hearts. This is one of the signs that our repentance is genuine. When we come to see our idols as worthless and we abandon them, Friend, I wonder if this is how you have experienced the Lord in your own life. We stop to worship our idols and turn instead turn to worship God alone and to live our lives for Him alone. The fourth expectation that God's people can have is that God will gather His people to worship Him. This chapter ends with two more pictures about what will happen in that day. We see a picture of a harvest and we see a picture of a worship assembly. Look at verse 12 in chapter 27. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. This is a picture of judgment. Whenever we see this picture that God will harvest the earth, this is a picture of judgment. But notice what will happen to God's people. When he will, he will, do, the, he will do the harvest and you will be gleaned one by one. What a beautiful promise. God will not glean us wholesale in big bulk. God will glean us one by one. And notice in, in, chapter thir- in verse 13 that those who are lost in Assyria and Egypt will come to worship the Lord on his holy mountain. It's not merely Israel that will worship God, but those lost in enemy territory, they too will come to worship God. This is the ultimate aim of all human history, that people will gather to worship the Lord. We can be confident, dear friends, we can be confident that the Lord will accomplish this purpose. Three truths that we have looked this morning about what is involved in waiting upon the Lord. Waiting upon the Lord 
involves trustful praise. Waiting upon the Lord involves constant yearning for Him. Waiting upon the Lord involves confident expectations of what He will do for His people. These expectations still lie in the future for us. These expectations are the following, that He will ordain peace for His people, that He will rise them up from the dust, that He will give them worldwide fruitfulness, and He will gather all His people one by one to bring them to worship Him. Friends, these are glorious expectations to set our minds upon as we wait for the Lord to come. Friends, don't make your waiting to be a waste of time. Don't make your waiting and try to find other things to distract you while you wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord with an active waiting. Wait on Him with yearning. Wait on Him knowing that the Lord will accomplish every one of His purposes. Not one of it will be thwarted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives us reasons to wait on you. You are a God who gives us the ability to see that you are worthy to wait on you. Father, would you now also give us the strength to do it? Father, the strength is not in ourselves. The strength to wait on you comes from you. Father, we pray that you would enable your people gathered in this place to to be a, a gathering, to be an assembly, to be a community of people who are currently singing and and waiting on you joyfully, patiently, confidently, knowing you are a God who will accomplish every one of your purposes. Father, we pray that you do so in the name of Christ. Amen.